when we have a membership class periodically here at the church, one of the things we do is we teach about baptism and the Lord's Supper. I suppose that's customary in churches. And the section that we have on communion is very short. And the reason it's very short is not because communion is uh, not important at all. It's because people come into a church with so many understandings about what goes on in communion, what it's all about, who can celebrate it and when, and and so many things that we realize it can't be covered briefly. It is, in fact, one of the most complex, confusing things about Christianity. And believe me, I've studied it for years and tried to think through why do different churches do things differently in the ways that they do. But the reason we just teach for a very short time on communion is because we have a built-in remedy to the problem, and that is that every month on the first Sunday of the month, we celebrate communion. And so we have like a built-in opportunity to talk about what it means and how we should celebrate it to think about this most important act of worship. The scripture tells us that there are two ritual actions that Jesus gave to us to practice. They are baptism, water baptism, and the Lord's Supper or communion. And uh, they were given to us by Christ in order to bind together his people into a fellowship in which it had recognizable boundaries as to what it meant and who was in and who was out. And um, a God-honoring church, I believe, a living, true church, will need to have these two things firmly in place. And the better that people understand them and participate in them and experience what they are meant to experience as a result of that, uh, the better and stronger the church will be. And so you need to be well instructed about this, but well instructed means to come regularly enough so that you hear what these things are all about. After all, in this passage, there is a warning given to the church against eating of the bread and drinking of the cup in an unworthy manner. Paul even says that some people in the Corinthian church were uh, guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. And we need to know what that means and make application to ourselves accordingly. So today I just want to cover three things. First, what is communion? Like, what is the bread and the cup that is before us? Uh, Secondly, what does communion mean? In other words, what does God, according to Scripture, offer to us by celebrating communion together? So what is communion? What does it mean? And what does it require of us? In other words, um, to experience what God offers to us in this, what is it we need to be doing? What, What needs to be true about us, our hearts, our lives, our experience, in order to participate in a worthy manner, to use the words of Scripture. So first, what happens um, in the celebration of communion, according to Scripture? Well, there are two broadly speaking views that are found in Christendom, and they've developed over the last 2,000 years. On one hand, if you think of it as a spectrum, you might think, uh, use the word realism, and on the other side is symbolism. And churches and individuals and groups fall into some place on the spectrum in terms of how they understand what communion is. On the first side is realism. And this view says that when Jesus held up the bread at the Last Supper and he said to his apostles seated around the table, this is my body, 
he meant that really and literally, that he was and uh, is physically, literally, and spiritually, since they would say you can't separate Jesus spiritually and physically, there's present, it is present, he is present in the bread. So they hold that when a, a properly ordained person says the words of institution, which are the first thing that Paul read to us, our Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed and so forth, when, when he says that and prays uh, the prayer of consecration, the elements actually become really, that's where realism came from, they really become the body and blood of Christ. So when the faithful share in the bread and the cup, they are literally appropriating Christ himself into them. And their argument is, that's what Jesus said. This is my body, which is broken for you. Now, who believes this? Um, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that. Many people here, I'm sure, have grown up in the Roman Catholic Church or have been uh, influenced by it. Roman Catholics are technically called Western Catholics, but there are also Eastern Catholics, which are the Eastern Orthodox Church. And there's also another form of Catholicism called Oriental Catholics, which we don't know anything about, but they're the Coptic churches that are now in persecution in uh, Syria and uh, Egypt and places like that. Those forms of Catholicism all agree on this, that Christ is really present. It's also held in a little different form by Lutherans and by some Anglicans, that is Episcopalians in the Anglican communion worldwide who call themselves Anglo-Catholics. They also believe this. Now, did I tell you this was confusing? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but that is the view called realism, and that's why if you grew up in the Catholic Church or you've ever been there, when the priest consecrates the elements, he holds up the bread and cup, holds them up visibly, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the faithful are thought at that moment to be called to worship the elements of bread and wine because they are now objects of worship since they are the body and blood of Christ. Now, there are two problems with this view, and I'm being very simplistic here. The first is that the Jewish setting in which Jesus said, this is my body, um, they, they could never have understood Jesus to mean that he was present and that the, the bread would somehow convey in some almost magical sense some power to people who partake it. They couldn't have, have thought that because that was completely foreign to the Old Testament and to the Jewish idea of the sacraments. You see, in the Old Testament, there were also ritual actions that God gave them to confirm the covenant. They were things like circumcision and the celebration of Passover. And when they celebrated Passover, they never thought that the elements that they were using were in some way conveying something to people. They were symbols. They knew they were symbols. And so they, they wouldn't have thought that, at least the people sitting around Jesus who were not from a Greek background. That idea uh, could have only arisen later when the church went into the Greek-speaking world and had to then explain the faith, the Greek philosophy, and so certain ideas arose that were foreign to the original setting. But there's a second problem with the idea of realism, and, and that is that the scripture teaches clearly that Christ is localized in a physical body after his incarnation, so that even now his physical body is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. His physical body is incapable of being present everywhere, he, he couldn't 
have held up the piece of bread at the Last Supper and said, this is my body, as though you were saying, this is my body, and this piece of bread is my body, because he's localized in a physical body. Now, he is present spiritually everywhere, and he may be present, of course, is present, I guess, spiritually, since he's present everywhere, even in the bread and the cup, but that's different from the view of realism. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, if you think of it, is symbolism. And symbolism says that the bread and cup are symbols of Christ's death, that he is not present in any unique way when we celebrate communion, any different way than he is present when we meet together and we open the word of God in faith. And he promises, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, there's no question that these are symbols according to scripture. Um, but that doesn't mean they are only symbols, bare symbols. On this side, primarily, uh, at least in most people's identification, are Baptists and uh, many independent churches like ours uh, would hold to symbolic view of the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't mean they are only symbols according to scripture. And the problem with symbolism, at least in its purest form, is that there's a couple of statements in scripture, more than two, but there's two particularly that seem to imply that something more is going on than just a symbol. For example, in the chapter before this, in chapter 10, Paul is urging the Corinthians not to go to idols' temples and celebrate uh, in an idol's temple. That was a common place to go on birthdays and anniversaries and times of deliverance. People would go to a temple of an idol and they would have a sacrificial meal together. And Paul is urging Christians, you shouldn't share in sacrificial meals in idols' temples. Now, he says clearly, that's not because there's any reality to idols. We know that there's no Zeus or Dionysius or Bacchus or any of these gods that people worship. There's no reality to those things. But, he says, and this is important, he says what the pagans sacrificed, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, the implication is that behind idolatrous worship, there is a very real evil spiritual power that is demonic power, those opposed to God in the spiritual realm. And because demons use idol worship as a way to gain a foothold in the lives of their followers, that Christians ought to stay away from that kind of thing. You cannot, he goes on to say in chapter 10, uh, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Now, some kind of real fellowship is being offered, it says. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of, the, of uh, demons. Now, uh, the implication is that something in the Lord's Supper gives a sense of fellowship. At least it's what is meant to be given. Fellowship with Christ, a real experience that isn't possible in another way. Something a little more than a bare symbol. Uh, another reason that symbolism doesn't quite say enough is that in uh, this chapter, in the part that Paul read, he says, um, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I mean, he's saying that somehow participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, the words he uses there, 
have brought many people into a place of physical and spiritual weakness and even illness or death under the discipline of God. So something uh, more than a bare symbol is involved. Now, if you think of those as the two ends of a spectrum, realism and symbolism, there is a mediating view called spiritual presence. And actually, that is very complicated, and I'm, I'm boiling things down, but it really comes to us in two forms. On one side, you have people who incline more towards the realism end, and they say that Christ, his actual person, is present in the consecrated elements of bread and the cup, spiritually, not physically, but his spiritual person is in the elements at that point. And then on the other side, and this is personally what I believe, there is a view that says Christ is spiritually present in the hearts of the worshipers when they celebrate communion in a, a worthy manner, to use the words of Scripture, when they do it in the way that God intended, both outwardly and with the inward attitudes that God intended, Christ promises to be spiritually present with his people in a unique way that the Bible calls fellowship, sharing. In fact, the word communion is the same word. Now, on the table before us are these elements of bread and wine, technically the fruit of the vine, which it says in Scripture. I'm sure it meant wine originally, but we use grape juice in our setting because of problems with wine drinking in our culture today. And uh, they don't become sacred in any way by anything that anyone says today. They don't uh, become something different than what they look like, and yet God uses them to somehow communicate to us a, a sense of fellowship with Christ. So secondly, what does communion do for us? It's described in this word fellowship. What does God offer to us in the celebration of communion. Well, first thing we have to notice is that Christ himself commanded us to do this, and that's very important. This is not something Christians came up with. It's, it's the one thing that when you read the New Testament and then you read the immediately following writings that we have, First Clement is the earliest by one of the elders of the church in Rome, written around 90 AD. When, when you read those writings, it's an unbroken chain that takes you to the celebration of communion. That was the thing that everyone refers to as being unique to the Christian faith. And uh, Jesus himself commanded it. It's obviously, he obviously meant it to be a resetting of the Passover. The Passover celebrated the deliverance from Egypt, and certain ritual had developed around it, both in Scripture and then in the experience of God's people through the centuries. And when Jesus celebrated what we call the Last Supper, it means the last Passover. And at the last Passover, he took two elements of the meal, the bread and the cup, and he gave to them a different significance. And um, he said that now they would point to a redemption that was different and infinitely more important than redemption from Egypt, that is redemption from sin. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 5 and verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Christians knew that this was a recreation, or you might say a reinstitution, a resetting of the Passover. It's our continuation in the Christian era of the Passover meal. So it was something that Jesus gave to us. And then along with that, we have to note from Scripture 
the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a covenant sign. Those are important words, a covenant sign. Now, um, I use the word sacrament. Some people are very uncomfortable with that, especially if they came from a background where the word sacrament is used in a different way to mean something almost semi-magical. And so many uh, people desire to use the word ordinance to refer to this. This is an ordinance of the Lord. There is no problem with that, except that the word ordinance means something ordained by Christ. And Christ ordained many things to be done. Um, he uh, ordered us to pray, to give to the poor, to care for one another, to admonish one another. But none of those other things that he ordained were designed specifically as ritual actions to point us to his death. Only baptism and the Lord's Supper like that. So they are ordinances, among many ordinances, but they're unique in that sense, and historically the word sacrament has been used to describe that. Now, in the 4th or 5th century, St. Augustine, who you may have heard of, gave a definition of a sacrament that goes like this. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign, ordained by Christ, of an inward and spiritual grace received by believers. And that is a very good definition. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign, ordained by Christ, of an inward and spiritual grace experienced by believers. And it points to true, two truths about this idea of it being a sign, which is a word scripture uses. First, it's a covenant sign. By saying it's a covenant sign, it takes us back to the whole uh, range of biblical history. And the fact that under what we call the old covenant, that is the one made with Moses described in the Old Testament, they also had outward signs given to confirm and strengthen them in the covenant. They were things like circumcision, the celebration of the Sabbath was one of the signs, and Passover. And those things were used to strengthen them, to bind them together as the people of God. And what happened under the New Covenant is Jesus took two of the Old Covenant symbols, circumcision and Passover, and he gave to them new significance in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so in one sense, they're a continuation of the people of God. In another sense, they're the way in which God creates a new people, we might say. And uh, they are covenant signs. Uh, those would probably be better words to use to describe these things than sacraments, since that's confusing to people. But it has not found its way, uh, at least into common usage in the history of the church, so I still say sacrament. But I want to illustrate what I mean by this idea of a covenant sign, an outward sign that points to an inward experience. Um, suppose you're invited to a wedding, and in the wedding invitation, it tells you this wedding is going to be in a specific large metro park. And this park, uh, as everyone knows, has multitudes of little spots where people could get married, all back tucked away in different places, and there are roads that get to these places. But the, uh, the invitation says to you, when you get to the park, follow the signs. They'll say, Joe and Tammy's wedding. And so you, you go in the park, and after you get in, you know, you drive half a mile, and there's a sign. Joe and Tammy's wedding tells you to turn right, and you turn right. Now, the invitation is said, pay attention to the signs, especially the last one. So you go through, and you follow the directions, and you get all of a sudden to one that you didn't expect to see. And all, it's there. You don't see a road. But then you realize, off to the left, there's a little two-track road that looks like it's hardly been used. And you think, this has to be a joke. You know, somebody took the sign and they put it in the wrong place. This wouldn't be right. 
but your wife tells you, you should follow the directions. So you, you turn left, you know, and you're headed down this two-track road, and it goes out, it seems like, forever. And you're, you're saying, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? You know, I can't be back here. And, and as you take this two-track road back a mile, you go a whole mile, all of a sudden it opens up, and there's 100 people waiting there to celebrate a wedding. And you've made it to the wedding. Now, the sign, the last one particularly, that says, Joe and Tammy's wedding, the sign is not the location, right? You don't take the sign. You can see the sign and say, oh, the last sign. And, and you, you get out and you have a picnic underneath the sign and say, what a great thing it is to have found the last sign. Obviously, you don't do that. You follow the direction of the sign. You obey what the sign says. And you go down this tiny two-track road and you get to the location. The sign is not the location. It's not the reality that you're looking for. But the sign effectively points to the reality. In fact, you can't get to the reality without obeying the sign that you see. And that's how a covenant sign works. A covenant sign is not the thing that it signifies. That's one of the problems with realism. It is not what it signifies. It points to what it signifies. And if you obey what it says, you get to the experience or you fully experience what it is is indicated by it. Baptism doesn't literally wash you from sin, even though it was told to Paul on the day of his conversion, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Baptism itself doesn't wash away sins. Baptism points you to the washing of sins that's found in the blood of Christ through faith. In the same way, uh, the Lord's Supper is something that points you to fellowship with Christ. By itself, participating in it, it is not fellowship with Christ. It's just a sign. But the sign connected with the word of God and what the sign calls you to do is meant to bring you into the experience of fellowship with Christ. Now that means taking communion without obedience doesn't give you what the sign points you to. Any more than seeing the sign of Joe and Tammy's wedding and getting out and rejoicing in it and taking the sign home gets you to the wedding. However, on the other hand, by taking the sign or obeying the sign, you know, taking the sign in obedience, it does convey to you what it points to. It's the means that God has given to you to get to a certain thing, and it is, in this case, the joy of fellowship with Christ through repentance and faith. And that brings us to the third point. What is it is required of us in order to celebrate communion and to experience what it points us toward? If it is a sign of the covenant and it's meant to point us to the experience of radical reconciliation to God, the experience of being fully accepted and set free spiritually, to be God's child and to live for him, if that's what it points us towards, the full experience of that, then what is it we have to do in order to experience that? Well, now you can look at the passage that was read to us, and particularly the warnings that start in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, it says unworthy manner. If you grew up using the King James Version of the Bible or, or you have it, unfortunately, that translation says 
whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup unworthily. And the word unworthily seems to imply that there's something about the worshiper himself or herself that is not worthy. But the actual wording is in an unworthy manner, meaning there's something about how it's being done, not about the worshiper. And um, what exactly is this idea of an unworthy manner? Well, I think the context tells us what it is. If you look at the immediately preceding verse where he is reminded us of what went on at the Lord's Supper, Paul adds these words at the end of the words that Jesus spoke. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, the whole point of the Lord's Supper, at least as a group, is that we are proclaiming in a symbolically, symbolic way the Lord's death. And something about an unworthy manner would be doing it in such a way that you are not proclaiming the Lord's death for sinners. Now, the Corinthians were doing this in the whole context, in the way they were celebrating communion. At this point, it apparently was as a meal on the evening of the first day of the week. And uh, they would gather together, and those who were wealthy would bring more to the potluck, and they would go ahead and eat before those who were poor showed up. So they were kind of creating haves and have-nots in the church. And they were aggrandizing themselves and you know, showing how generous and powerful they were. And Paul gives the remedy for this, eating in an unworthy manner. He says in the next verse, verse 28, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, we're meant to engage in self-examination when we come to the Lord's Supper. And the self-examination is meant to put us in a state where we are going to, by taking the elements, proclaim the Lord's death. Um, what does that mean? Well, uh, let me start with the, the, the opposite. What doesn't it mean? It's like there are two ways in which you can err when you look inside yourself. You can fall on one side or the other, and both of them are wrong. Self-examination could lead a person to conclude, I looked inside and I saw that I was good enough this week. You know, I looked inside and I realized I've read the Bible enough this week. I've prayed enough. I've been a good person. I haven't sinned. I didn't get angry at my wife. I was kind to my mother when she was demanding of me. Whatever it is, I looked inside and I saw that I was good enough. Well, <clears throat> if you were good enough, then the Lord didn't need to die, did he? You don't need a Savior if you're good enough and God is happy with you because of your actions. And Jesus himself said he came to save sinners, not self-righteous people. So how can you go to the Lord's table feeling like I'm good enough to do this and proclaim the Lord's death? Because there's nothing about why Jesus needed to hang on the cross in your attitude. However, you can fall on the other side as well, and it's equally serious. You could come to the table, as some people do at times, and say, I looked inside and I saw that I'm sinful. But that doesn't matter. Because everyone's sinful. And the gospel tells us that God accepts sinners. Now, that sounds pretty good. You said you were a sinner, but here's the problem with it. The gospel message is not God accepts sinners. The gospel message is God accepts sinners because Jesus died in their place. 
That's a very important, I mean, it's essential to the whole idea that God accepts sinners. It's, it, it's shown that God can accept sinners. He opens his arms wide to receive them because he sent his son to die in our place as our substitute. So when we come to God through Jesus, we are forgiven. You know, it is true that everyone is a sinner, but that's not the point at the Lord's Supper. The point at the Lord's Supper is, I am a sinner in these specific ways, which I don't have to acknowledge to everyone, but I have to acknowledge them to God. Now, in either case, if you come saying, I'm worthy this week, I'm good enough, or you come saying, well, I'm not good enough, but the whole message is God accepts people who come to him. In either way, you're not proclaiming the Lord's death. And in, to, to take the elements in a worthy manner, in the way that God intends, requires that you look inside and what you see is your sin. Whatever it is in word, in attitude, in action, and you see your sin and then you look to Christ on the cross and you repent. It is my sin that sent him to the cross. It is my anger that I exhibited towards one of my children this week in this specific way. It's my lust that I experienced this week in a specific way. It's my pride, my dishonesty, my harsh words to my wife, my failure to forgive, whatever it is. It's my sin. To say that I need Jesus means that I need him to forgive me of specific things. And I want him to come close to me and strengthen me. Now, when you go to the table with that in mind, then you take the elements and you are proclaiming the Lord's death. I am acknowledged Jesus died for me, for my sins. You're saying that to everyone who sees. Now, you're not saying to anyone, at least not in that setting, you're not saying, I sinned in these specific ways. God does not require that we stand up in front of the church and say, I'm going to take communion because this is what I did this week. This, at least in this action of it, is a, a vertical experience. We're getting our hearts and our minds centered on God. Now, in order to drive it home one more time so that we won't miss it, he says one more thing in verse 29. He says, for if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, this has something to do also with um, coming in a worthy manner. It has something to do with what it means to proclaim the Lord's death. It means to discern the body. Now, that's a tantalizingly obscure statement, as many people have noticed, because it could mean two things. In my judgment, it was written the way it was, simply because it means both of them. It could mean the body of Christ, the literal, physical body of Christ that was hung on the cross. In one sense, what you do when you come to communion is you see your own sin and you acknowledge that is why Jesus died. Not just for sin in general, not just because there are evil people in the world. He died for specific sinners, and I am one of those. So you're seeing the body of Christ. Even though it doesn't say the body of Christ, that obviously could, mean, could be uh, one of the meanings of this. And the body, on the other hand, could mean, and does also in 1 Corinthians mean, the body of Christ. That is, um, after he left, he left those of us who are connected to him by faith. We are his body on the earth so that we carry on the works of Christ. 
and forgiveness and reconciliation and other-centered love and all the different things that we engage in. Discerning the body means to recognize that you are a part of, um, of God's people. You are not alone in this experience. Communion is not something that you celebrate alone or just with your spouse or something like that. Communion is something that God's people as churches are meant to do when they meet together. It's a sacrament that's meant to bind us together in experience by showing that we proclaim the Lord's death and by granting to us, if we come to him in that attitude, a sense of fellowship with him, deep enjoyment of forgiveness and of acceptance and power to live. Now, what that means is that not only do you have to see Christ on the cross, but you have to see that um, you have to engage in the kinds of relationships, or at least seek to, in which the gospel becomes a reality. Now, once a month, on Sunday morning, the first Sunday of the month, and for some of our small groups more frequently, because they celebrate communion in their groups at times, at least in those periods, you have an opportunity to center your heart and your mind, and your spirit on Jesus Christ. We all go through life, and we, we engage in so many things in which we only later think about God or the implications of what we did. We can always deal with those things before God, and we should on a daily basis. But when we come to the end of the week, it's like a built-in time for those of us who are believers to come to God and to center our hearts and our lives, to develop an attitude of reverence for who he is and for what he did for us. I mean, that's why I try to announce the week before that we're going to have communion on the following week so that people are reminded that they uh, can think about these things and reflect on them as they come for the celebration of communion. But to come to a worship service that is distinctively Christian in the sense that we are going to do something that Jesus himself told us you should do. And he didn't tell anyone else to do it. It's not found in any other religion or anything like that, but it's something Jesus gave to us. It's very important. So we should come to him in the way that he instructed us, which means to come through the bread and the cup as visible signs that he ordained to be used, and to come to him through a heart, not just outwardly through the signs, but through a heart that is captured by his grace and made repentant by reflection on our own hearts. And what you'll find is that over time, you grow month after month, time after time, more in love with the Savior. Let's pray that that would be our experience, even this morning. Again, Lord, as we come before you, we thank you so much that you yourself have given this to us. We desire that in our fellowship, we would over time be so bound together as a family as we sit around this table. And our children who grow up here would be so bound to us through the experience that we would come to you with a sense of uh, reverence and we would find in you everything that you offer to us. It comes to us in the word of God, but you tell us that you convey it in a very experiential sense to us as you connect the word, my body was broken for you, my blood was shed to you, the words of scripture that Jesus spoke, as you connect them to a visible sign that we take and, and we assimilate into our body. 
We pray that you would give to us month after month this growing sense of dependence on you, growing sense of desire to live for you. I pray that as we do this, time by time, you would free us from sin and sinful habits and patterns, that you would grow up our children in such a way that they, are, uh, they avoid certain practices and consequences that they could face in life, or that when they experience them and they see the, the effect of sin in their own heart and life, that they turn from those things and they come back to you quickly. I know that there are people even now who may be backsliding in their own experience, and they might be present here this morning. I pray that you would grant to them the repentance that they need, a turning from those things, no matter how powerful those things seem to be, and a reliance upon you and a willingness to uh, not only share in this in faith, but to go on and experience what that faith points us towards, which is the fellowship of the people of God in which we can help each other and encourage each other and strengthen each other. And we pray that even now in the next minutes, we would taste that as individuals and as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name.